Picture this. One of the world's biggest economies, a leader in tackling climate change, is hit by an energy shock. Aggressive green policies, anti-nuclear sentiment, and a poorly planned energy market liberalization lead to power cuts, public outrage, and a pushback against the renewables revolution. Opportunistic cartels swoop in to take advantage of the crisis by manipulating prices and supply. This sounds like what's happening in Europe right now. The shutdown of some nuclear power plus wind and hydro shortages have led to a natural gas crunch. Conspiracy theorists think that Russia's Gazprom is manipulating Europe's gas market. The green continent's enthusiasm for its big bet on renewable energy is cooling. But actually, the story happened in hyper-green California years ago. Massive power cuts led to a backlash against green policies. Enron squeezed the state's electricity market then as unscrupulously as Vladimir Putin does Europe's gas markets today. I covered the ins and outs of the Californian power crisis. When I met Loretta Lynch, the beleaguered chairwoman of the state's powerful Public Utility Commission at her headquarters, power-saving measures meant we sat in the basement in the dark. The happy ending to the story is that despite the crisis, California doubled down on its climate initiatives. It forged ahead with support for electric cars, for renewable and low-carbon fuel standards, long-duration batteries on the grid, and so on. The Golden State is a shining example of how to advance the fight for clean energy in the teeth of a fossil fuel shock. I'm Vijay Vaithiswaran, Global Energy and Climate Innovation Editor at The Economist. And I'm the host of To a Lesser Degree. In this series, we take a clear-eyed look at the people, the politics, and the technologies needed to avert extreme climate change. In this episode, we look at the politics of climate change, the pressure points on the negotiators at the UN's COP26 climate summit in Scotland and the governments they represent, from activists, from public opinion, and from the realities of the global energy market in a time of unusual stress. We'll explore how litigation is being used to force action on climate when governments or companies aren't responding to other forms of pressure. We'll hear from Amina Mohammed, the Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations, on the responsibilities of rich countries to help poor ones deal with climate change. The very basic commitment, the $100 billion that was put on the table in Paris, is a handshake. It's not the resources that are needed for climate action. We need trillions. And we'll delve into America's thorny climate politics. So, COP26 has been underway for a week now, and there's one week left to go. Joining me for a mid-COP check-in are Katrine Brahik, Environment Editor, and Oliver Morton, our Briefings Editor. Welcome both. Hi, Vijay. It's nice to see you. Groovy to be here, Vij. So, how's COP26 going so far? The number of press releases and announcements and noise-making by big poobahs is no end to it, but <laughs> cut through the clutter. Tell me what's really going on. Yeah, it's all a little bit overwhelming, isn't it? Basically, what's happening right now is you're seeing a whole load of multilateral announcements on all of the big themes that the UK has chosen coming out. A big pledge amongst countries to end deforestation. A lot of pledges to phase out coal came last week from quite a lot of countries, something more than 40, I think. And those include some countries that really burn a lot of coal, like Poland, and saw some very interesting moves by South Africa, which gets about 90% of its electricity from coal and is the 12th biggest emitter. 
But the big coal emitters and the big coal exporters, China, Australia, the U.S., did not make any particular pledges on coal. Am I right, Ali? That's how it's looking, yes. And we can understand why that is. But especially for America, I think it's just entirely deplorable. So we've had agreements on coal and deforestation. What else? So another thing that we've seen is a deal on methane, the second most important greenhouse gas. It causes a lot more warming per ton that is emitted than CO2, but it lasts much less long in the atmosphere. And it's important because if you cut methane now, you get gains on slowing the rise in temperatures, not immediately, but close enough. More than 100 countries have agreed to cut methane emissions by 30% by 2030. And we did see some noise around financing net zero. Oh, lots of noise. With big numbers. Yeah, big many numbers, trillions, big numbers, many trillions. Oodles and oodles of money, Ollie. Uh, what do you make of that? So the big news was GFANS, the Glasgow Finance Alliance for Net Zero, which is encouraging all sorts of lenders and banks, and got many of them signed up, to put quite strict controls on what sort of projects they will lend to and to have their portfolios consistent with a path to net zero. I was listening to Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, talking about this because it's really kind of his brainchild. And it sounds really good, but it's got this very strong, to my mind, technocratic feel. But I honestly don't think that it's going to do any harm and it might do quite a lot of good. So some of this sounds very promising. How significant are they really when we look under the hood? Is there as much here as it seems, especially with the net zero trillions? Is that as big a deal as we think? It's all very promising in the sense that it's all very good to see this kind of energy and commitment behind things. But ultimately, it's only as good as the work that comes behind it. And it's also all very late. So the big picture here, every time you take a step back, is that currently the world is not at all on track to meet the Paris goals. I mean, there are a lot of people now looking at details about what the various different pledges might mean for the Paris targets. And I think that the number crunchers have some crunching still to do, and we'll probably come back to that issue. But it's worth bearing in mind that the biggest source of uncertainty isn't quite what the pledges add up to. It's whether people will deliver on their pledges. That's the big issue going forward. What can we expect this week in the second week of COP? In the first week, you have the big announcements, you have some heads of state, and at the same time, you're going through a lot of detailed technical work. And in the second week, that detailed technical work gets lifted up to the level of negotiations between ministers. Then that funnels through to, at the end of the whole process, what's called the COP decision, which is a statement that everyone agrees to saying what they've achieved, what they want to be doing, how things are changing. And so that decision document is the focus of all the efforts this week. And we'll probably see a draft of it maybe Wednesday or so, and then we'll see some serious bickering. But we've already had over the weekend by the UK delegation, a laundry list of all of the issues that have come out of the first week's negotiations. Right. So what are some of the big ticket items that they're looking at? There's, of course, Article 6, which is this scheme under the Paris Agreement to create a global carbon trading mechanism that's been very contentious in previous COPs. They seem to think that they're actually quite close on agreeing guidelines. There's issues around finance, delivering on promises for money to flow from rich countries to poor countries to help them with mitigation and adaptation. Issues around the guidelines for how countries will report their progress on tackling climate change. And a really big topic that is emerging is this discussion of actually 
accelerating the ratchet, which would be getting countries to increase their climate pledges every year instead of every five years to accelerate efforts to cut emissions over the next decade. Kat, one of the catchphrases coming into this summit was keep 1.5 alive. Is 1.5 still alive or is it dead? What's the realistic assessment? Oh, that's harsh. I mean, look, temperatures right now are between 1.1 and 1.3 degrees above pre-industrial. So on those grounds, 1.5 is not dead but dying. But you have to remember that you can overshoot a temperature target and then come back down to it. And so I personally think 1.5 is a massive stretch. I would hate to say that it is dead. It's going to be hard, but you can come back down to it. So, Ollie, how do you sum things up at the moment as we uh, cross the midway point? How How's the outlook for this next week? It's hard to say because the sense of what's happened at the end has retrospective influence on what you think of what happened earlier on. So if things work out really badly and the final decision is something of a nothing burger, then all the other stuff that looked pretty good last week or looked good enough will look a lot worse. If there's a fairly confident, strong decision, that will be the lens through which everything is seen and the the COP will look more like a success. So at the moment, it's Schrodinger's COP. (laughs) Brilliant. Thank you, Ollie and Kat. Thank you, Vijay. Thanks, Vijay. COP26 has been attracting attention the world over. But one person who is paying particularly close attention is Amina Mohammed, the Deputy Secretary General of the United Nations, who was previously the Environment Minister for Nigeria. I spoke with her about why the conference is so important to developing countries. COP26 has had so much momentum. It has been energized by the sometimes lack of ambition and the concerns around members in the G20, sometimes by just the engagement of youth and civil society, and sometimes by the private sector, uh, where it has been more forward-leaning with the asset managers and asset owners committing to a net zero uh, with what they manage. So I think we've gone into COP with a lot of energy, a lot of expectation. So on that point about success, What do you think needs to happen at COP26 now that the energy and enthusiasm are there and people, wheels are in motion? What do you want to see? Well, we'd like to see that the leaders who have come into COP at the summit and engage with the ambition that they all say is needed to to avoid a catastrophe will give that signal to their negotiators to pull us through the next week and come out of the ambition around the mitigation, Article 6, the financing, and of course, what we need to do with ambition. I hope those signals will be given and that we really see some robust discussions happening. We are still a way away from a 1.5 degree world. We're hurtling towards a 2.73 degree. That's just not acceptable. At the moment, one of the themes that's a backdrop to the COP26 summit is something of a global energy crisis. Europe is facing a cold winter with low natural gas stores, as you know, that's created political problems in Brussels and other capitals. There have been power cuts and coal shortages in China, India, other places. There's hydro that's at low levels in Brazil this year and wind shortages. How does this context of an energy crisis, as it's seen in some capitals, affect the prospects for COP26? 
I think it's a reminder of the, the fact that we've not taken those investments we needed to have made earlier as seriously as we should have done. So they would have been able to mitigate against many of the crises that we see now had 10 years, 15 years ago, one began to invest in that energy transition. It's not an excuse, but it is a reality that governments are going to have to deal with. Just as we would say with COVID, we have to have preparedness for the next pandemic. It will surely come. The energy crisis will surely come. What are you doing to prepare yourself for that? And, and you know, with developed countries, this is so much easier for them uh, to address than it has been for developing countries that don't even have the resource base to address it. One of the main issues in this COP and indeed in, in previous negotiations has been commitments made by developed countries to assist developing countries in the transition, not having maintained those financial commitments and maybe increasing them even further. Can you talk a little bit about what you think the developed world owes the emerging world when it comes to the climate transition? And what more would you like to see coming out of this COP? Well, the growth of the developed world has been on the back of the developing world. They've got to where they would like to be, many aspirations fulfilled, economies that have grown and, and taken their people with them. But there's a vast number of people in the rest of the world that that has not happened to. The very basic commitment, the $100 billion that was put on the table in Paris is a handshake. It's not the resources that are needed for climate action. We need trillions. So if we can't get to the handshake, then the trust deficit continues to increase. So I think that's the first step is that COP really needs to produce the handshake. We're still in the millions and, and haven't got to the billions that need to get to the trillions. So the scale at which we have to do this, the speed at which we have to do it, seems to be not in the vocabulary that those are discussing. Commitments are being made, but they're missing the scale. They're missing the sense of urgency. And that's what we want to bring. And I think we have brought to COP. Now, we're about halfway through this COP in Glasgow. What message would you want the negotiators to hear and keep in mind as we move towards the home stretch and often the difficult stretch of any of these sorts of negotiations. What do you think uh, you'd like to say to them that would sharpen their focus on achieving a successful COP? Heed the messages of science. Every T that they cross, every I that they dot should be towards a 1.5 degree world. And to know that behind every T they cross and I that they dot are millions and millions of people. This is what you have to remember in a closed room where you're negotiating. It has to be about the result that we need to get at the end of that negotiation and not to get lost in the weeds that will literally wipe out people's lives and livelihoods. While climate change is already impacting people's lives around the world, on the streets outside the summit, the sense of urgency is palpable. There have been protests outside the venue all week, building in momentum. Rachel Dobbs is in Glasgow reporting for The Economist. Over the weekend, I went to the largest protest, which was part of a coordinated series of marches happening all around the world and meant to draw the attention of the leaders at COP. Well, Rachel, what was it like? It was an absolutely horrible day in Glasgow. It was incredibly windy. There was driving rain but there were still tons of people there. The organizers say that there were over 100,000 people. I personally saw a lot of different groups all campaigning for different aspects of the climate crisis. There were groups there demanding more biodiversity. There are groups there demanding justice for climate refugees. The mood was generally ebullient and upbeat. There was lots of music, there was lots of chatting, but also determined and quite angry with what people feel is a lack of action being taken about climate change. 
And what did the protesters say about COP26 itself? I spoke to quite a few people at the demonstration and there was quite a lot of scepticism and disappointment about what they felt was being achieved at COP. One activist, Fee, who was leading a group calling for a Green New Deal, told me that there hadn't been enough concrete action taken at the summit. And we as young people, a movement of young people, are absolutely terrified about our future. And these people are up here in COP26 saying they care, but not doing anything. And we know that we're just... Another protester called Roger, uh, he was holding a sign saying no more greenwash. And he said that he thinks public pressure is going to be the thing that really brings about change. I think that uh, planet's in trouble. Um, I work in the ecology sector and I can see that our environment is collapsing and we need to do something radical about it. And what do you think the role of kind of protests like this is compared to, for example, the political proceeds that are going on at COP at the moment? Oh, I think this is this is this will ultimately drive the conversation and the leaders have to listen to the people. Do you agree with that, Rachel? What kind of impact does this sort of public pressure really have? It's always really hard to say. I think that making grievances known and making opinions known to politicians and businesses always does have an effect, but it's very hard to quantify. And public enthusiasm and anger don't necessarily translate well to changes at a policy level. But one form of climate activism where the outcomes are more observable has not been happening in summits or at big demonstrations, but actually in recent years has been taking place in courtrooms. I spoke to a few experts to find out more. We can trace the first climate change litigation cases to the mid-80s, but it really wasn't until late 90s, early 2000s that climate change litigation took off. Catherine Hyam is a policy analyst at the London School of Economics. She coordinates the university's Climate Change Laws of the World project, which tracks the role of the courts in climate action globally. Since the signing of the Paris Agreement, we've seen over a thousand cases compared with 800 cases filed worldwide before the Paris Agreement was signed in 2015. And of those, we do see a significant growth in the number of strategic cases. Strategic litigation refers to cases that are meant to bring around some broader societal shift. So these are cases often brought by activists and NGOs, although not exclusively, which really seek to change the narrative on climate change in a particular context. Outside the US, we've now tracked about 40% of the cases being filed uh, globally as being strategic litigation cases, compared with, say, just 2 or 3% in 2005. In contrast to the early days of climate litigation, when cases often hinged on narrow administrative issues, many of the recent examples are being fought on much more expansive grounds. Litigants are arguing that the kind of harm that they are suffering or that they will suffer because of climate change is having massive impacts on their human rights. This type of human rights-focused climate litigation has evolved really rapidly in the last few years, and that's thanks in very large part to two landmark cases from the Netherlands. The first case was brought against the Dutch government by an environmental NGO called Urgenda, and it asked a really important question, whether the government had an obligation to reduce emissions in order to protect its citizens. And the beslissing laat dan als volgt de rechtbank beveelt de staat in 2015, the Hague District Court decided that it did, a decision that was later upheld by the Supreme Court in 2019. 
The government was ordered to reduce the country's greenhouse gas emissions by at least 25% against 1990 levels by the end of 2020. The ruling established two really important precedents. Firstly, that as part of their duty of care for citizens, governments have a responsibility to mitigate against climate change. And secondly, that all governments have a responsibility to tackle climate change, regardless of how large they are or how big their emissions are. That was a groundbreaking verdict, but the Agenda case did hew to old patterns in that it targeted a government rather than a company. Earlier this year, though, a second big ruling in the Netherlands upended this. The case was brought by a Dutch environmental organisation called Milieu Defensie, aka Friends of the Earth Netherlands, against Shell, the oil and gas giant. Previous climate cases tended to focus on the specific sites and projects where a company's polluting activities took place. But, as Donald Poles, the director of Milieu Defensi, told me, his organisation decided to take a different approach. Our argument is that the cause of the infringement of human rights through climate change is not the CO2, but the policy of Shell that causes the CO2. And because we focused on the policy, we could address Shell in the country where its headquarters are, the Netherlands, and where its policy are made. So two years ago, we filed the case and then we went to court last year, December. It consisted of four days of court procedure. De rechtbank doet vandaag uitspraak in de zaak die in de pers wel is aangekondigd. And then in May, the judge announced a verdict. And daarmee kom ik tot een afronding. Met het belangrijkste element van de uitspraak van de rechtbank. De rechtbank. The verdict in essence is that Royal Dutch Shell contributes substantially to causing dangerous climate change and that it has to reduce its contribution to dangerous climate change by 45% in 2030 across its whole value chain. So not only in the Netherlands, but throughout the world, including all of its more than a thousand subsidiaries. It was an enormous climax of emotions. I'm a father of three for the first time in my life, and I've been working on climate change for more than 20 years. For the first time, I was convinced we're going to stop climate change. Shell has appealed the verdict, and the case will probably be run again in 2023. But in the meantime, Shell is obliged to follow the ruling and reduce its emissions. My expectation is that fired on by the success of our court case in the Netherlands, many other countries with large multinationals will start similar procedures and it's already happening. Similar cases have been launched in France against Total, in uh, Germany against Volkswagen and uh, Daimler-Benz, in France against their oil company, in Australia against a coal-fired plant. The legal system has been designed to protect the people and it can be used to protect the people against dangerous climate change. The rise in climate litigation off the back of cases like the Milieu Defensi one means that there's more pressure on companies than ever before to reduce their emissions and pursue the strategies and tech innovations that will allow them to do that. Otherwise, they face more risk. That was Rachel Dobbs. She'll be reporting from Glasgow this week. The Economist Today email newsletter has all the latest news and analysis. Kat, 
What do you think of climate litigation? It is clearly putting some pressure on governments and companies, but should it be up to the courts to dictate emissions reductions? Vijay, I think there's a huge variety of court cases here. It depends entirely on the type of case that you're looking at. There are some instances where clearly the courts themselves have already decided that it's really not up to them. So in the US, for instance, there's been a lot of resistance on behalf of the courts to guide federal policy or even state level policy on emissions. And my worry is that, you know, we talk about the sort of like David and Goliath climate litigation thing. We've got to remember that fossil fuel companies have lawyers too. And the US Supreme Court agreed to hear a case about whether the government has the powers that it wants to use to limit emissions. So the courts could work in one direction. They could also work in another direction. But Vijay, I know you've thought quite a lot about this. What's your take on it? My concern about climate litigation is that what you're going to end up doing is a bit of what happened with big tobacco, a scourge of public health. There's a big movement against it, as we now see against fossil fuel emitters in some of the developed countries. And what you had was big tobacco up and left and in effect peddled its products in other parts of the world where it remains legal. China, most notably, but Indonesia, other countries as well. And so you may very well find that in Europe, it becomes a hostile place for fossil fuel companies to be headquartered or to do their business. But because there's still a viable market for oil, and there will be for many years, especially in emerging economies, you're probably going to see either the same companies leave or shift their operations through shell companies, no pun intended, shell companies, that is legal shell companies, shifting their asset services, or divest. And you'll find actors that are less susceptible to legal and investor pressure like private equity companies or national oil companies taking over these operations and with much less scrutiny, less susceptible to legal and other kinds of pressure, less transparency. And so I don't think we'll actually do the benefit to the climate that we would hope. There may be some benefit in that you can't be based in Europe and do this, but I don't think it's going to be a big part of the solution. Again, I do think that this depends on the kind of court case that you're looking at. So, for instance, there has been quite a lot of movement towards court cases that look at companies' requirements to disclose risk, for instance. And so this is just using the courts as an additional lever to create greater transparency about climate change and climate risk. So there was a court case in Australia, for instance, where a young man sued an Australian pension fund, and his claim was that this pension fund was not doing enough to disclose its exposure to climate risk. And as a result of that, the pension fund did. It changed its policy. So I think that's an instance where the court cases are being used as an effective lever. Another example, which is, in my opinion, one of the most striking examples of a climate change court case was the case where a group of lawyers called Client Earth sued a Polish energy company that had plans to build a coal-fired power station. And they ended up buying some shares and as shareholders claimed that the company was going to fail on its fiduciary duties in that it was investing at coal at the very moment when coal was on the way out. And it succeeded. The coal-fired power plant was not built. So it's a little bit simplistic to say, do courts work and will they work? Because I think they're being used in many, many different ways. Litigation is not the only form of pressure on companies and governments that have a stake in fossil fuel companies. Later in the show, we'll be talking more about how the energy crisis might impact the messy politics of climate negotiations. But first, a reminder that if you're not already an Economist subscriber, you can get the best offer by heading to economist.com slash climate pod. 
The latest issue takes a look at Brazil's climate scorecard under President Jair Bolsonaro and examines India's air quality. Economist.com slash climate pod is the link to subscribe. And you can find that link in the show notes for this episode. Climate negotiations at COP26 are challenging, but that's because they're often even trickier back home. Nowhere is this clearer than in America. Congress has just passed an infrastructure bill that includes climate-related investments. Now, that's a positive sign for Joe Biden, who was in Glasgow last week to push for more global action. But he has struggled to advance his Build Back Better climate agenda. Charlotte Howard, our New York bureau chief, follows developments closely. Joe Biden in April outlined America's ambition to try to reach net zero and to try to have its emissions by 2030. And at COP, Biden tried hard to reassert America's credibility on climate change. We'll demonstrate to the world the United States is not only back at the table, but hopefully leading by the power of our example. And to do that, he emphasized his own climate agenda domestically, his Build Back Better framework. My Build Back Better framework will make historic investments in clean energy, the most significant investment to deal with the climate crisis that any advanced nation has made ever. But that kind of rhetoric has been somewhat undercut by Biden's struggles to get his plan through Congress at home, hasn't it? That's right. Biden has presented earlier in the year a very ambitious set of policies to help accelerate America's shift towards clean energy. So these included a clean electricity program to switch America's utilities more quickly, America's electricity generation more quickly away from fossil fuels. They included investments in transmission, in energy storage, an extension of tax credits for all sorts of different clean energy technologies, et cetera. And the big holdup is largely due to the senator from West Virginia, Joe Manchin. And when I spoke with Joe Manchin earlier in the year, in advance of Joe Biden really pushing forward his agenda, the senator was really cagey on whether he would or wouldn't support that clean electricity program. This was one of the big questions about climate legislation, as people wondered how ambitious the bill could be. And the lack of his support means, frankly, that it is much less effective than it would have been otherwise. Now, that's fascinating. You've had a chance to sit with arguably the most important man in America at the moment. What was your sense about whether he's dealing in good faith or is he flying the flag for coal? How do you assess his motivations at this moment when, in effect, he's helping to hold his own party's president's politics hostage on Congress? I often think about the energy debate as having two groups of people with everyone characterizing themselves as climate and energy realists. So one group of climate realists would say the climate is changing at an alarming rate and to avoid trillions of dollars of economic damage and untold human suffering, you have to push much faster away from fossil fuels and you can do that sensibly. The other group of quote unquote realists say the world is dependent on fossil fuels for the foreseeable future, people need cheap, affordable energy, and it's foolish to pretend otherwise. And Joe Manchin said to me, 2050 is very doable. He was talking about the net zero goal by 2050. But he said, it's not going to be doable by elimination. It's going to be done by innovation. So what he means there is, don't try to eliminate natural gas and coal. The world needs it. 
instead invest in innovation. And that's a line that's been advanced for a long time by advocates within the fossil fuel industry. And so in America, what you have is states that are either actually dependent on the fossil fuel industry like Texas or have a history of being dependent like West Virginia. Coal is actually not that huge a part of West Virginia's economy at the moment, but culturally it's very important and it's very important to voters. And West Virginia is a very small state. It's just worth keeping in mind. And so you see 1.8 million people determining the fate of the entire world's climate agenda. Now, we see in other parts of the world, like Europe, an energy shock at the moment with natural gas being scarce at the moment in Europe and concerns of a cold winter and a tension between climate ambitions and perhaps uh, the political realities of an energy crunch. How do you see that playing out in the U.S.? Well, there are going to be higher energy prices this winter. And as you've noted in your work, this is something that could potentially have been avoided and might be avoided going forward if there were more sensible, coherent climate policies, better designs of electricity markets, if we were able to advance energy storage and investments in transmission to balance renewable power so that it was a better alternative, for instance, to natural gas in the short term. But I think what you see now is a taste of what's going to come, which is that investors really are not keen on investing in big capital programs in oil or, frankly, in natural gas. And in the long term, that's a good thing as more capital is directed toward cleaner energies. But in the short term, it lends itself to a lot of volatility in oil and gas prices. And that has the potential to be politically dangerous. One could argue that it may accelerate interest in clean energy technologies, but there's also a risk that people say, you know, our energy bills are so high, we don't want them to get higher still. And so it undercuts some of the support for more aggressive climate action. So, as we heard from Charlotte, Joe Biden has a lot of ambition to get something done for climate, but he's stymied by the political realities back home. Now, that's not a problem unique to the U.S., is it? No, it's definitely not a problem unique to the U.S., but America is in a very particular situation here. A, because it is generally looked to for global leadership, and B, because frankly, it has a pretty crap track record on climate change, right? It was in the Kyoto Protocol. It was not in the Kyoto Protocol. It was in the Paris Agreement. It was not in the Paris Agreement. And so Joe Biden's realities back at home are being looked at by everyone as a measure of how much trust the rest of the world can put in the United States' position in Glasgow. When you say it's not a unique situation in America, it's maybe not unique, but for a head of government's views of what needs to be done on climate to be so divergent from what is actually legislated in that country is remarkable, all the more remarkable in a major democracy. I agree that America has many innovative resources, but it's not just venture capital type innovation that you need. And the fundamental view is that this unappetizing situation we're in now is probably the best um, the world's going to see from America on climate for quite some time. It's very hard to see a situation in the near future when, again, the presidency and the two houses of Congress are all three in Democratic hands. And if one of them is in Republican hands, then it seems extremely likely that there will be no progress at all. And it's also quite possible that a Supreme Court that is now considerably further to the right than it used to be will be more harsh on attempts to deal with this through regulation. So, yeah, maybe America's not unique, but it is a huge global problem in this area. 
And what Ollie just points out there about, frankly, the tragic situation of the future political outlook here is it makes it all the more important that in America you do have the sort of non-federal actors, right? And so through the Trump years, we saw the states, we saw the cities, we saw businesses pulling together. In fact, they sent their own delegation to the UN climate summits. So as imperfect as it is, the solution in America is to not rely on the federal government. So, Ollie, it's not just the politics that are making it difficult to move things forward on climate. We're also dealing with an energy crisis. What does the current energy crunch tell us about the challenges involved in shifting away from fossil fuels? It shows that it's going to be very difficult because trying to balance out getting out of fossil fuels with not running out of them so quickly that you stymie existing economic activity and thus create a backlash, that's the sort of balancing thing that neither planned nor market economies are necessarily particularly good at. It will, though, perhaps lead to a certain amount of skepticism about the advantages of fossil fuels, because there used to be this claim that fossil fuels were cheap and reliable and renewables were expensive and flaky. Now, we know renewables are indeed intermittent, but they're not so expensive anymore. And fossil fuels do have this thing that they go up and down in price. That's an important lesson to learn, but the fossil fuel price volatility can shake up an awful lot and shake loose an awful lot of nastiness if it goes on. In short, there are going to be lots of ups and downs in the years ahead. The important thing is not to go backward, but rather to continue pressing forward. Now, the world isn't all bad news. There's good news out there, too. And to finish up each episode, we've been bringing something that caught our attention uh, for some positive reason. And this week, I'm going to jump in with something, if you don't mind. Go ahead, VJ. Knock our socks off. All right. So an academic team from Switzerland, from ETH in Zurich, has come up with a breakthrough. They're creating clean fuels from thin air, just sunlight and air. Under field conditions, this is a paper in Nature just published, and I think this could be a very exciting new thing. What do you think? I think it's a nice engineering project, but despite what they say, I think that it scales rather badly. The point here that I think isn't immediately clear to people is they're not taking solar energy from solar voltaics and then using it. They're actually using big parabolic solar reflectors in order to cook together hydrogen that they've got out of water in the air and carbon dioxide that they've taken out of the air. And both those processes are not, I think, in this model powered by solar power. And then they have reactors which they can shine hugely amplified sunlight onto and they can get reactions that make synthetic hydrocarbons that you could use instead of fuel. And I mean, yes, I believe that in the long run, this is a thing that's going to have to happen, though not necessarily by this technology. But it seems to me that it's interesting to see that you can, in fact, if you're really good engineers, put this all together. But my feet remain fairly thoroughly swaddled in their socks. At some point, it's going to be a required bit of innovation, right? Where There's going to have to be some kind of replacement for the fossil fuels that are used in planes, right? It's also worth noting that there are several companies around the world that are basically trying to crack this nut, experimenting with using the CO2 that they're sucking out of thin air in order to make what would be carbon neutral fuels. And that is important. They're not sucking CO2 out of the air and hiding it away, therefore reducing concentrations in the atmosphere. They're just taking the CO2 out, it goes into a plane, it gets burnt in the plane, it goes back into the atmosphere. 
All right. Well, we'll keep a watching brief on the drop-in fuels, as these are called, but with a skeptical eye, as per your comments, Ollie. And with that, we're going to drop out of our good news segment. I say thank you, Ollie Kat, for joining me today. And as I bring this episode to a close. Thank you, EJ. Thanks a lot, Vij. That's it for this week's episode of To a Lesser Degree. Next week, we'll come to the end of COP26. Our panel will be back to look at what gets agreed in detail. Will enough be done to keep extreme climate change in check? Join us next Monday for that and more. And on Thursday, November 11th at 5 p.m. GMT, Kat and Ollie will be at COP26 discussing the latest developments and answering your questions about this critical climate get-together. That's all in a one-off live digital event for our subscribers. To take part, sign up now at economist.com slash climate live. To a Lesser Degree was edited by Marguerite Howell, produced by Rory Galloway, Pete Naughton, and Hannah Mourinho. The executive producer was John Shields, and the sound engineer was Evan Viola. I'm your host, Vijay Vaitiswaran, and I'll be back next week to put the most important and challenging ideas and people in the world of climate in the hot seat. See you then.